Okay, well, it is eight. Uh, it is eight o'clock, so we can uh, get started. So uh, welcome, everyone. So good to, ha uh, to have you with us. Um, those of us who are watching us uh, live on Facebook, so good to have you as well. Uh, welcome uh, to Drisha's Spring Program and this new team of Shavuot class. We encourage everyone to turn on their videos if you're here on Zoom with us. It would be so nice to feel like we are together just before the pandemic. So it'd be really good to uh, see faces when we uh, have this conversation. Also, uh, uh, feel free to ask questions by either unmuting yourself or by commenting um, in the chat box here on Zoom or as a comment if you're watching us live on Facebook. Um, in this class, we will take a close look at the history and development of the Azharot, a specific form of piyut recited on the festival that enumerates the 613 commandments. We will begin with a brief historical introduction to piyut and its role in uh, Jewish prayer before looking at the overall features and content of the special Shavuot liturgy. We will then uh, turn to the Azharot Pew team themselves, focusing especially on their poetic and didactic elements. It's my pleasure to introduce Eats uh, Landes. Eats is a PhD candidate in uh, religions of uh, Mediterranean antiquity at Princeton University and a lecturer in Jewish history at the Jewish Theological uh, Seminary of America. He received his BA in Talmud and Religion and his MA in Talmud from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His research focuses on Jewish liturgy and on the history of rabbinic Judaism. His first book, Studies in the Development of Birkat HaAvodah, was published in uh, 2018. And with that, I'll turn this uh, to you, Yitz. Great. I was going to share my screen one second. Can everyone, people see the PowerPoint? Great. Um, so yeah, I'm Yitz. I'll just add very, very briefly by way of additional introduction. I don't want to take too much of the time that um, I live in New York City uh, with my wife and our two sons. And as mentioned, I'm a PhD candidate and also I teach. Uh, and I've been studying prayer for some years now. Um, as mentioned, I was trained at the Hebrew University where I was able to study with some really fantastic scholars uh, of, of Jewish liturgy. Um, and that was the topic of my master's thesis, which ended up becoming a book. Uh, it's my first time at, at Drisha, but I've for a long time kind of respected institution from afar. Actually, not not so afar because a lot of my friends have studied or or taught or continue to teach at the institution, and I'm honored to be a part of this series with such esteemed scholars. So thank you for inviting me, and thank you all for listening in during this obviously very very difficult period. Um, so introduction and outline. As mentioned, the primary purpose of the class will be an overview of the history of Azarot one of the central features of Shavuot liturgy. And we'll talk a little bit in a moment about what that is, the Shavuot liturgy. Um, so the outline of the class is that we'll talk about what is Piyut in general, then we'll move on to the Piyut team of Shavuot in particular, before looking very closely um, at the Azara Atayin Khalta, which is one of the most ubiquitous um, kind of Azarot that there are in liturgy kind of across different rites. And also we'll look a little bit at some other early Azarot. Specifically, also, we'll talk about Sadigon's Azarot and kind of what he did to the whole genre and how it changed in light of his Azarot. Then we'll talk about some later developments, um, and then we'll finish by asking, how is this prayer? Um, something that I'll just kind of name is that oftentimes um, we spend so much time in scholars of looking at how this is poetry and realizing how different, you know, texts, whether it be Midrash or the Bible, have been turned into verse that we forget that we're talking about prayer and it's very important for us to also reflect on on what that means. Um, so what is Piyut 
anyway, part one. Just very basically, piyut is liturgical poetry, usually in Hebrew, that serves to supplement the standard prayer text and even replace some of it. It comes from the Greek word poetes, to, to make, to create, but also just poetry. Um, it originated as a practice in the land of Israel around the late fourth or early fifth century. And it's divided into various periods. So there's the pre-classical period and um, the Pew team uh, from the pre-classical period are, are, are some of their main features is that they're anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. There's no rhyme scheme. And there's often this four accents dress pattern. And you're familiar with this probably from some prayers like the prayer, Aleinu l'shebech l'adon hakol. And you could just, you could count there. Aleinu is one stress, l'shebech is a second stress, and then l'adon hakol, two more stresses. That's kind of how, one of the main characteristics of this early pre-classical piyut. Um, whereas classical piyut is exceedingly complex. Um, there, it's signed by authors and acrostics. Um, and there's a rhyme, there's almost always rhyme, except in some kind of very specific cases. And there's more and more genres. We'll talk about the genres in a moment of how Pute becomes extremely complex over time and more and more subgenres of Pute uh, are developed. And there's also different stress patterns that go beyond this kind of four part kind of stress pattern. Some of the most famous Paitanim are Yanai from the sixth century, who's the first uh, Paitan to sign his name. And you can tell in his, in his Kedushot, in the Piyutim of his that we have, also some of his other Piyutim, um, at some point, he always kind of just has one line that starts with Yud, another with a Nun, and then two more with, with Yuds. And so that's how we know that the composition was written by him. Um, very interesting what that has to say about the development of the notion of author in Judaism, but that's a topic for a different class. And after that, Elazar Brabi Kalir, who is perhaps the most famous Python, a lot of his beauty team has survived and exists today in particularly the Ashkenazic Siddur. Um, for a time, traditionally, people thought that he was an IA student, but now we know that that was likely not the case. And he lived in the seventh century. So after that, after more like the eighth century or so, we start seeing that there's different centers with different aesthetics. Pew kind of takes off. If at first it was really a phenomenon um, of the land of Israel and the Jews that lived there, and actually there was a lot of opposition to Pew as a practice um, by the Babylonian rabbis who were against this practice of, of inserting Pew into liturgy. I mean, again, this is something which seems to supplement the prayer text and kind of interrupt prayer. So that's somewhat problematic, halakhically speaking, from the Babylonian perspective, at least. Um, we start seeing it actually being adopted also in Babylonia. And we see centers there, we see centers in Italy and Ashkenaz, which are closer to the Palestinian tradition. And then Babylonia also has communities that are kind of um, its descendants, so to speak, in terms of practice uh, and also aesthetic, like in North Africa and Spain. So just gonna quickly look at a map, just it's always good to have a map just to understand like what we're talking about. So just again, it starts here in the land of Israel, eventually it picks up also in Babylonia. And then towards the end of the first millennium, we start seeing it also in Southern Italy, parts of North Africa, uh, different parts of Spain, both in Muslim and eventually also in Christian Spain um, and also deeper in, in Provence and France and Germany. Um, so just to kind of situate ourselves what we're talking about and the time frame is again, kind of the latter half of the first millennium and then continuing on until today. So what is Piyut part two? The genres of Piyut, the one that we'll be talking about today is very expansive kind of categories, the Krova, uh, eventually mislabeled in manuscripts as the Krovets, if it's a term that some people have heard. And the Krova is just um, the Amida with Piyut. So it's um, one example, the most famous example is the Kedushta, which uh, adorns an Amida when the Kedusha is recited. 
And it's important to know that in the land of Israel, in the right of the land of Israel, um, they actually didn't say the Kedusha as often as we say it today. It was really just only said during Shacharit on Shabbat and on holidays and on such special occasions, they would add few team that would lead up to the recitation of the Kedusha. Um, kind of a very, very long composition, which gets longer and longer with time. And we're familiar with it, perhaps in our communities, mainly from Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, um, where we still have a lot of these few team that lead up to the Kedusha. So the Shivata is um, an Amidah that does not have the Kedusha. It is usually just for Musaf, uh, where there's seven blessings, sometimes more, like in Rosh Hashanah. Um, I'll get to, yeah, Rashut is actually sometimes the beginning of the Piyut, and we'll talk about this a bit more later, um, when the Chazan has to kind of ask permission to start saying Piyutim. So within one of these compositions, like within the Kedushta, the first thing that might appear before the Piyutim start is a short Piyut that's called the Rashut, where the Paitan asks permission, or the Chazan asks permission to start actually reciting Piyutim. So the Shivata, uh, just to return to that, is um, Piyutim that adorn Amidah of Musaf, so there's no uh, Kedusha, in this case, in the land of Israel, and um, yeah, it just it ends up actually being so much shorter, ironically, than the stuff that they would say in Shacharit. Um, but there were especially complex ones on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, so Rosh Hashanah, as we know, there's blowing the shofar in Yom Kippur. There is the Seder Avodah when the Paitan and then the Chazan would kind of go through all the practice of what would take place in the temple. And then the first day of Pesach when um, there's a prayer for Tal for dew, and then Shemini Yetzirah when they pray for Geshem for rain. Um, and then just additional ones, the Kina, which is an originally Palestinian form, uh, starting with the Nantif Av, but it eventually kind of um, would take place, would kind of take place outside uh, of the Amidah. And the Slicha, which also seems to have originally been part of the Amidah, but a Babylonian practice, which also ended up kind of being something which took on its own life outside of the context of the Amidah. The Ma'ariv, um, very kind of basically just a piyut that adorns the blessings of Kriyat Shema, at the nighttime, and the Yotzer are Piyutim that adorn the blessings of Kriyat Shema during the day. And then lastly, outside of the synagogue, we also have Piyutim for Berkat Amazon um, to reset it on holidays or perhaps kind of in festive meals surrounding a Brit or a wedding of some sort. So that's just kind of macro. What is Piyut? <laughs> it's a very, very brief introduction. Um, some people could spend entire semesters, entire year-long courses on just understanding all the different intricacies, the different genres and subgenres and parts of Piyutim. But that was an introduction necessary so we could, so we could start talking about the Piyutim for Shavuot. Um, so the Piyutim for Shavuot, first of all, are all really on one theme, and that's the theme of the Torah and the giving of the Torah, um, which is perhaps not so surprising given <laughs> what the holiday kind of stuff becomes um, for rabbinic Jews. We have really all the various kinds of Piyutim that I mentioned we have those for Shavuot. We have once for the evening, we have a Ma'oliv, um, we have the Yotzer, we have Putim for the morning Kriyat Shema blessings. As mentioned, we have this kind of genre of liturgy that's somewhat adjacent to Putim, which is the Tabumic poems in Aramaic, which Professors Novik and Lieber spoke about in the last two classes. Um, and then we have the Kedushta, which is again, the Kedushta originally in the land of Israel adorned uh, the Shacharit of holidays on which Kedusha was recited. Um, and these include two kind of macro forms or two kind of subparts to them, um, which are unique to the holiday of Shavuot. So the first is called the Seder Olam. And this is a fantastic subgenre within Piyut. It's actually perhaps one of my favorite things. What happens is that the, 
it's told from the point of view of the Torah. And the Torah is talking to God. And they had this long conversation that goes on for thousands of years, at which point uh, every, at every kind of generation, God says, now do you want to be given? And the, and the Torah says, no, I find a blemish with Noah, with Abraham, going on and on and on, saying that it does not want to be given to any one of these people until they get to Moshe and B'nai Israel. And then finally the Torah says, now I am ready to be given. Um, so it's really kind of interesting thing. There's also a lot of other things that come up once you start having the Python uh, imagine what the Torah would say and think. We kind of end up with these very, very interesting kind of reflections on what the Torah is, which is one of the reasons why I like this so much. And then after that, once it is given, there are pew team for each of the Ten Commandments, the Seder Dibrin. And if you heard Professor Novik and Professor Lieber's talks, you can imagine <laughs> this is a theme which comes up quite a lot uh, throughout the holiday. And you can imagine also it might lead to a very, very long davening if they're constantly just going on and on about each of the commandments, both in Aramaic and in Hebrew, uh, for a number of hours. So that's kind of the main form of, of the Kedushta on Shavuot. I should say that my teacher, Professor Shlomit Elitzul, has a very important book in which he published um, the Kedushta Ot for Shavuot of Elazar Rabbi Kalir. Um, additional ones have actually been found since, the, since she printed that book, since she made that edition. And of course, it's only the Kedushta Ot. There's also stuff for the evening, there's stuff for the uh, Kriyat Shema, and there's also additional things from Musaf, which have not yet fully been published. And so all the say for there's, there are Shiva Tot, for example, there are these Piyotim for Musaf. And on top of that, either in conjunction with the Shiva Tot or separately, we have this additional genre uh, of Piyotim for Shavuot called the Azharot. Uh, and we'll talk in a moment at length about what that means and how these look, but at first, I'll just say that the term itself is actually not so clear to us. Um, as a lot, you could say these are warnings, so to speak. And so maybe it is named as like, this is a warning of things that people should celebrate. People should, sorry, not celebrate, people should follow because what the Azarot do, as mentioned, is they enumerate the commandments. Um, but also it is a term Azara that is used specifically in rabbinic literature to denote mitzvot uh, negative commandments, maybe it's based on that because there are more negative commandments than there are positive commandments. Or maybe it's because it was just the first word in an early Azhara, um, Azharat Reshit. And coincidentally, Azharat, the Gematria is 613. So maybe that also is part of it. But we don't really know why, why the genre um, is called Azhara. What we do know is that in the manuscripts from the Middle Ages, already pretty early on, um, that is how it is referred to. And also some medieval authors refer to it by that term. Um, so. I should just say, on top of that, I mentioned uh, this edition of the Kaliri's Pew Team by Professor Shemit Also, There's another very, very important book, Emachzor um, by Jonah Frankel, um, who actually, it was like a family project that he and his father-in-law and then his son kind of took on. Um, his father was Daniel Goldschmidt, a very important scholar of liturgy. Jonah uh, Frankel was at first a scholar of Midrash, but then kind of turned uh, into the scholar of liturgy to help complete this project of publishing the Ashkenazi Machzor for the entire year. And Shavuot was the last volume. It appeared around almost 20 years ago at this point. Um, and there he has editions of all the Pew team that appear in the French and German rites, um, which is also something which is a very, very important resource. Not the easiest thing to get a hold of anymore, but um, worth looking for if you want to like follow up on this and like read more about Pew for the holiday. Uh, and we'll talk also later about um, Pew team that appear not in the Ashkenazi region, but also in other rites. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at a rather ubiquitous azara called 
I'm also going to slow it down a bit so we can look at this in more detail. Um, you see here in the background an image from a manuscript called The Worms Machzol, uh, which is now in the National Library. It's from the late 13th century. It's a really magnificent manuscript. Um, and it's open to this page, um, This is how it looks in a different manuscript. This is how it looks in the manuscript in the Panel Biblioteca Palatina in North Italy. Fantastic, fantastic library with one of the largest collections of Hebrew manuscripts. Um, also a 14th century German machzol. And this is how the piyut starts. Um, before we look at it in details, I want to show one more manuscript. So I showed you two European manuscripts and it appears in many, many European manuscripts, but it also actually appears in a lot of Geniza fragments. So right, the Cairo Geniza is this um, storehouse of discarded Hebrew manuscripts uh, in medieval Fustat, kind of near contemporary Cairo, um, which was rediscovered in the 19th century. And while there is a lot of European material there, it's also important to recognize that the majority of what we have there, given that it is in modern day Egypt, um, is material that comes from the East. So even just kind of on the face of the material evidence, we have a piyut that appears in a lot, a lot of European manuscripts and also in a lot, a lot, a lot of Eastern uh, Geniza fragments. That's interesting. It's important to recognize that that's not the case with so many Piotim. Um, and that tells you something about just how popular it was, obviously. And we'll think also a little bit about what that means about where it might have been created, right? Um, I could just say that it's not so common, for example, for later European Piotim to appear in the Geniza. Things that were written by Italians or Ashkenazi Jews in Europe from the 12th century on, for the most part, don't really make it to the Geniza. So this also tells us, even on the face of it, just looking at the material evidence, where this piyut might have originated and, and when. So let's look at it in more detail. Um, on the right here, I have the Hebrew text from um, Frankel's edition, as I mentioned. So he has a machzor with all the piyut team that appear in the Ashkenazi and French rites. So of course, this one appears since it is the most prevalent one that appears there. You gave the Torah to your people. And like a father, you warned your son. In your right hand, you wrote the words of life. And with your fingers, you carved out moral admonitions. These are all kind of based on various midrashim that I'm not going to go into in detail right now. But if you look at the Machzor of Frankel or also other ones with commentaries, we'll talk about that. The many measures of punishments and warnings, mitzvot and mitzvot lo positive and negative commandments. That's the introduction to the piyut, um, and then it goes on to actually start detailing the commandments. Monetary laws, capital laws, the naming of one who maims, hazarat shoftim warning judges against bribery of an evil one sentenced to death and commanding jurists not to be partial. This is the beginning of a very, very long piyut, as you can imagine. Given that these piyut team, the Azarot, try to enumerate all the laws, they're extremely, extremely long. Um, so we're not going to be able to even read a single one in its entirety because that within itself would take almost an hour. Um, so yeah, that is the opening line, the opening few lines of this rather ubiquitous um, Azara. And my question, and you could just kind of drop your answers um, in the chat based on what we have seen until now, when and where is this from? Just kind of, if you have any thoughts on that, you could drop it in the chat quickly and 
I'll try and kind of say out loud what I think are the answers that are close to being <laughs> correct. I guess not the people will be watching on Facebook. I don't know if anyone is chatting that in on Facebook right now. So I'll say just as hints kind of some of the things that we could look at are um, are that the rhyme scheme, right? So right, so we have off the off the bat, right? If it's ubiquitous, that has to it might actually within itself say that it is rather early because it's so widespread. Um, Another thing also, two other kind of pieces of evidence that we could use, and this goes back to a few slides ago, uh, is first of all, is there a rhyme? That's kind of the first thing you have to ask yourself when you see a pew and you want to try and kind of place it. Is there a rhyme or not? Um, so, there's actually no, there's no rhyme here at all. And if you recall earlier, I mentioned that actually the early pew team do not have um, do not have uh, rhyme. Um, and on top of that also, they have, for the most part, this kind of like four-part stress, right? Doesn't fit perfectly, but that's kind of how they do it. They always kind of fudge it a little bit. But again, we have this like four-part kind of thing of four-part stress symbol. So from these three things alone, the uh, how, how ubiquitous it is, the lack of rhyme, uh, and also kind of this four-part stress, we would think that it is actually quite early. We would think that it might actually have to do with um, the early pre-classical kind of uh, grouping of Piyutim from the land of Israel, uh, which kind of, again, ends at some point in the sixth century. That's what we would think. That's what scholars thought for a very, very long time. I'll just add one last thing which I see in the chat here is that the language is actually quite clear. And if anyone is familiar with, you know, the language of Yenai, but especially the language of the Kaliri, the language is actually very, very difficult kind of to parse. And this is actually relatively easy to parse. But here too, we might say that perhaps kind of this use of early, of, of relatively easy language is also kind of this like a feature of the early Piyut, the pre-classical Piyut. And that over time, as Piyut gets more complicated in various ways, both by adding rhyme schemes, both by changing the stress patterns, by adding more and more genres and subgenres, one way in which it certainly also gets more complicated is that the language becomes more dense. This is very, very clear in the work of the Kaliri, which ends up becoming extremely, extremely dense. Although at some point in his career, he actually kind of shifts modes and starts writing more clearly, kind of towards him, like his late style and his, his later view team. So again, everything we said until now makes it sound like this is a very, very early view. Um, let's look to see if some other pieces of evidence that we could find here. Um, why is it not clicking? Here we go. Here's another manuscript, as mentioned, it appears in many manuscripts. This is one from the Hamburg State and uh, University Library. It's the same thing, and we see here it says, Azharot de Rabbanan de Metivta. It says, these are the Azharots of the rabbis in the Metivta, another kind of Aramaic, actually Babylonian Aramaic word uh, for, um, for yeshiva. Um, perhaps that might be helpful in some extent, but again, we can't place this Metivta and we don't even know what that means per se. Um, but in any event, everything I said until now is what people thought. We thought that for a long time that this actually was some kind of early Palestinian tradition, early land of Israel uh, style piyut. But then scholars started to realize um, that none of the Paitanim that we know of from later periods in the land of Israel wrote Azharot. Yanai didn't write any, Kaliri didn't write any. We also have other Paitanim that we know of who wrote for all kinds of occasions like 
Yabi uh, Yochanan, for example, or Pinchas Kohen, who's kind of the last one, who had a pretty large corpus, who lived in the eighth century. None of them wrote in the style at all. And on top of that, what we realized is that um, there actually are a bunch of people from Babylonia who did write Azarot. Um, we'll see in a moment that Sadiagon, for example, wrote Azarot. And there actually is at some point, as I mentioned earlier, Piyut that also is written in Babylonia. Um, an interesting thing about it is that the, the genre there actually kind of doesn't start, when it, when it starts in the seventh or eighth centuries or so, doesn't start in parallel to what we see in the land of Israel. It actually kind of starts by writing in the more simple style that we saw early on in the land of Israel. Um, so what this means is that Piyut that was written in Babylonia in the eighth or ninth century actually sounds a lot like Piyut that was written in the land of Israel in the fourth and fifth century. Um, it's kind of like a counterintuitive perhaps kind of thing to think, but there's plenty of evidence for it at this point. Um, and the fact that no Python from the land of Israel until the 11th century writes in this genre and Babylonian Pythonim do write in this genre does kind of teach us actually that this is something which is uniquely Babylonian, at least until 11th century, by which point uh, there are not that many kind of differences between the land of Israel and Babylonia in this regard. And this actually is similar to one other genre of Piyut that we know, and that's the Slicha. I mentioned the Slicha earlier, this kind of penitential poem, which is very, very common nowadays, uh, you know, leading up to the Amin Ra'im. That is also something which at first starts in a very, very simple style, makes its way from Babylonia to the land of Israel and then to Europe, becomes extremely, extremely popular. It's much more popular than the Azarot in that there's just many more occasions to kind of recite Slichot. Um, and then also the early ones, the, you know, the classical Pythonim in the land of Israel don't write that. The Kaliri who wrote a huge amount does not write Slichot, nor does Pinchas Kohen or Yanai before and after him. Um, and so here too, actually, we have a Babylonian practice. So we'll leave that for the moment. Um, I wanna now ask a separate question. So we asked, where is this Piyut from? Where is actually the whole genre from? Now we're gonna ask when and where is it actually recited? So I mentioned that it is part of Musaf. Um, and the interesting thing about it is that it doesn't actually appear in a whole constellation of Piyut team originally, but rather it appears kind of smack in the middle of just the regular prayers that we have. So you can see here in this manuscript, again, this is the power manuscript, right before this period starts with this very, very nice header, we see here the verses of Kedushat Yom, in which the blessing for the holiday includes verses of descriptions of the sacrifices that were offered on that holiday. So it ends here, this might be somewhat familiar to people, et cetera, et cetera. That's oftentimes are familiar with that from the middle blessing um, on Shabbat and also on holidays? And right after it finishes the verses that describe the sacrifices, it starts this pute. That's where it is inserted, smack in the middle there. Uh, afterwards, it goes back to the to the main kind of statutory prayers uh, and continues. So that's what we see in a lot of the manuscripts. Interestingly enough, we have a very, very important Siddur, the Siddur of Amramgan, which is a very, very difficult text to use, um, but we do know in general that some of it can be relied on. It's written by Amramgan, who was a Babylonian rabbi in the ninth century. One of the problems with the Siddur of Amramgan and its manuscripts, and this is kind of a problem with studying liturgy, liturgy in general, is that these books are used, right? They are 
used as guides for liturgical practice. And they are constantly updated because liturgical practice is different all over the place and it's constantly changing. And so it's very, very hard for us as scholars to actually get to what Amram Gohan originally said, but it does seem like this is something which he might have actually had intended. And that is actually that the Azharal be recited at a slightly different point uh, in this blessing. He says here, when the Chazan or the Shedach Tibor gets to the to the, to the phrase, which is after, which is actually a few lines later. Then, um, after saying Haseinu, then he starts, sorry, then he starts saying that and then goes back to Haseinu. So it actually appears in a slightly different spot. Um, not sure what to make of that. It seems like there were just divergent practices pretty early on. But what it does teach us is that there is quite a lot of fluidity, right? There's, it's unclear where exactly to place this thing, um, but it is quite popular and different communities have different practices. Something which is just fun to reflect on in general in studying liturgy is just really this the huge diversity kind of uh, in practice, even when we're talking about saying the same exact piyut at the same time in the same blessing on the same holiday, there still is kind of this difference about where exactly to place it. And that's a very, very common thing to see in liturgy in general. Um, so after that piyut ends, after listing the commandments, we get to this kind of summary um, statement and it says as sheshmot shloshasem mitzvot and uh, and and such 613 commandments uh matan the explanation of their punishments and the giving of their reward all these wonderful beautiful things um i'm gonna skip a little bit um essentially the um, and these should be remembered for us, right? It's kind of asking um, as if these commandments should provide um, rewards to all of us now that we have recited them and also that we will perform them. Um, and it ends, on this day that we mark the receiving of the So one of the problems with the appearance of this piyut is that if you look at the Atayin Chalta, the, the piyut that appears right beforehand, it actually doesn't get to 613. <laughs> if you count all the commandments that are in there, it's actually more like 570 or so. So, um, but, but what, what happened here? It's possible that some was lost, but that's unlikely because we have, again, we have a Tain Chata in many manuscripts and it's actually pretty clear uh, and pretty uniform the number of mitzvot that we have in all of them. So it seems actually what we have here are really two different piyutim. We have a time chalta, and then we have az sheshmot shoshasrei, a separate piyut um, that were joined together at some point. Um, perhaps az sheshmot was the ending of a different um, azhara, an early one that actually had 613 in it, or maybe the person who wrote it just didn't really count how many there were in a time chalta. But it does not seem like the same person wrote both of them, given that there is this discrepancy in the number. So that's just on the level of like dissecting the creation of the of the machzor. There's a separate question, and that's what do you mean there's not 613 commandments? This is like everything you know. Everyone knows like there's 613 commandments, and the first person to say that actually was Rabbi Simlai, uh, Amora, who appears in the Bavli, who says 613 commandments were said to Moses at Sinai, 365 negative commandments like the days of the year, and 248 positive commandments corresponding to man's limbs. So this has become really what everyone kind of learns that there are 613 commandments. But even just looking at the source right here, 
the first source in which this number appears, the earliest one, um, doesn't seem like Simlai went and like counted all the commandments, right? There, there is this attempt to kind of align it with uh, the days of the year and the number of limbs that appear in a man's body. And I should say that that number of 248 appears throughout rabbinic literature is kind of like the go-to number for the number of limbs. I've never checked, but I imagine it's not actually that. Um, so it actually does not seem like, it's somewhat kind of like a superlative or like it's an agadah, as you say, it's not really trying to go out empirically and count all the commandments. Um, and the truth is that really nowhere else in the Talmud do they particularly care for this number of 613. And even after the Talmud, there are not that many rabbis, there are a few rabbis out there, I should say, who, who do not particularly care for it. Whereas for some reason, <laughs> some rabbis at some point took this extremely, extremely seriously, which is unclear why and or context, a lot to be written on that. But we see that there are examples in which that's not the case. Like for example, in our Azara, which we started with, Chalta, which has 570. The person probably was familiar with this passage from the Bavli, but did not think that it was something which was binding in any way. If you look, it's extremely, extremely hard to actually bring down the number to 613. And that's why whenever someone has attempted to create a list of 613, someone else has come and said, how come you took those 613, but not this additional one, additional two, to however many mitzvahs that you forgot to include in your list. So interesting to note, and we'll see that this actually becomes an extremely important aspect in the continued development of the genre of the Azara. Um, so just one last thing before we get to that question, and that's Azarat Reshit, right? So I mentioned Atayin Chalta, um, which I should say was recited for the most part, is recited for the most part on the first day of Shavuot. And then in a lot of medieval manuscripts, there's this additional Azara, which is much shorter for the following day. And it says right here at the top, this is the Hamburg manuscript that I brought earlier. Um, so there it said that um, Az the Azara and Chalta was from some rabbis and some yeshiva, not exactly explicit what that means. Here, there actually is more specificity. So first of all, it says, and Musaf of the second day, this appears in the context of the second day, when the Chazan reaches right, the whole community starts saying this following Azara, which starts Azarat Rishit. Um, and it says, which is of the holy Metivta, of the rabbis of Pumpetita, right? One of the academies in Babylonia. So actually, here too, we have this tradition that, you know, the Azarot go back to the Babylonian community and the Babylonian rabbis in particular. Um, this is much shorter, I should say. It's kind of like a summary to a certain extent. Um, it talks much more kind of, it doesn't actually try and list all of them. And we see that every now and then that there is this kind of pattern in, in, in the development of liturgy that like, there's this something of an attempt at a balance. Like if things are longer one day, then the next day is gonna be a little bit shorter. We don't have to do the whole thing all over again. There's no point like saying everything again, but rather, you know, we'll change it up and maybe also, you know, cut people a little slack on the second day. So this is one which if you have time later, we can come back to and look in detail. I just wanna show one thing. I mentioned earlier that there is this problem of actually like understanding what the 613 are. And there is a very, very vast kind of, I just mentioned a very, very, very vast literature of pew commentary in, uh, in medieval manuscript and for the most part really in medieval manuscript because it's just so vast that it's been extremely hard to actually parse through. Um, and this is just an example also from Parma of just a commentary. You could see very dense commentary on this piyut, um, elucidating it. And the same thing is true also for the other ones. You can imagine if the piyut itself is very long, the commentary could be extremely long. And this is actually the manuscript that 
is entirely just commentary and piyutim. Whereas we also have some manuscripts that are machzorim that have some commentary inside it as well. So I have some more pages here of that um, of that azhala, and we'll get back to it if we have time later. So we don't know exactly when we're talking about, right? We know where, we think we're in the Babylonian region. We think it's kind of early um, because it's ubiquitous. Um, and also we think it's kind of early because of this idea that there's only 570 in the time Chata, right? That the fact that there is only 570 leads us to think that it's early because as time move, progresses, the notion of 613 becomes more and more important. And we see this already in Sadia. So Sadia Gon died in 942, had a fascinating life, uh, kind of started in, in Southern Egypt, the Fayum, or in Egypt proper, and then made his way uh, to Babylonia by way of the land of Israel, met a lot of people, studied a lot of things, learned a lot of philosophy. Um, I kind of like to say for people who aren't familiar with him that he was kind of like Maimonides before Maimonides was a thing, uh, just because like he is basically the first driver we have, we have who's like really also very, very well versed in philosophy, although his interests were somewhat similar, sorry, were somewhat different. Like he was also, as we'll see in a moment, a poet and a liturgist uh, and also a grammarian. Um, so he published a sitter after traveling throughout the Jewish world at the time, he kind of realized that there was all this diversity in Jewish prayer, like I mentioned earlier, and that bothered him. And he decided to write a sitter to kind of try and actually, you know, uh, unify uh, liturgy uh, across the various Jewish communities. And he was actually successful to a certain extent uh, which is interesting. I mean, like, unlike other religious traditions, there's never really kind of, at least until recently, until the state of Israel, there hasn't really been kind of like, you know, kind of some state operation that allows for the unification of, of liturgy. There's, there's been a lot of diversity kind of uh, across communities. But with that, I think actually their amount of unity and similarity that there is is actually quite impressive. And to a certain extent, there are inflection points. There are these very important rabbis who kind of come out and say, this is how things should look. And one of the earliest ones that we have like that is really is really Sadiqo. So um, he writes in his sitter, this is in the context of his description of the Shavuot prayers. I should say also that the sitter is not like a sitter we have today. It's much more like a guidebook. Like it's kind of hard to, to pray out of it. It's much more instructions for how to daven. <laughs> um, he writes that we find, and it's in Judeo-Arabic, we find that the people of our time are accustomed to having the category uh, headings of the 613 commandments, the Sharia, recited to them during the Musaf prayer of Shavuot, which God commanded the children of Israel according to the work which begins at Tain Chalto, right? That's the piyot that we just opened with. I examined it and found that they, I, the commandments, fall short of 613. This is quite scandalous. I, I saw in it repetitions and surproof fluidities. Unfit to mention this book. Not only is it short by uh, a few dozen, it's also somewhat repetitive and it's not really a great, a great work of art. I saw fit to replace it, not because it is an indispensable uh, principle, not because you know he doesn't think necessarily even doing this is so important, but because the hearts of men whom I've seen are devoted to it. Um, so he says, if we're going to be doing this practice of reciting the azharot, we should do it right. And then immediately after this, he provides his own azharot. Um, so I should say he actually has a number of compositions along these lines. He has the um, his own azara, which he brings right then, which begins with the line uh, which is highly organized. So I mentioned a time chata numerous times, which has 570, and he thinks also Sadia that it's not really such a great work of art. One of the things that's problematic with it, also in his opinion, is that it jumps from topic to topic. You might even have noticed in the first lines that we read a few slides ago that 
it kind of goes from one mitzvah to another mitzvah without there actually being any really clear rhyme or reason to what the organizing principle is. Um, in between the time of the composition of Ifrita and Chalta and of Sadia, there appeared a very, very important book, um, kind of the first attempt uh, that we know of to really kind of try and organize all the commandments into categories into 613 mitzvot, and that is the introduction to the book Halachot Gdolot. Uh, and I emphasize here that it's the introduction. Um, to a certain extent, it kind of is a separate work from Halachok Dolot. Uh, and in brief, what we see is that Halachok Dolot is um, an attempt kind of to make the Talmud usable as a code. And at some point, uh, an introduction was appended to it, which talks about how amazing the Torah is, and then it lists the 613 commandments in four categories. Um, I'm not going to get into the categories itself right now, but Sadia chose to then write to adopt those categories from Halachot Dolot. Um, actually, you can see that the Halachot Dolot introduction was, was influenced by a Tain Chalta. So that's also how we know that, that the Tain Chalta comes before it. <coughs> and he wrote this extremely long and dense, and we'll look at a little bit, some, some of it later, um, Piyut enumerating the 613 commandments in the style of Halachot Dolot. One second. Um, interestingly enough, this period ended up having a life of its own outside the context of liturgy. For a long time, scholars referred to it, the rabbis referred to it um, actually incorrectly as Sadia's Sefer Mitzvot, Sadia's Book of Commandments. And this really amazing rabbi from the early 20th century who died in Jerusalem, Yerucham Fischl Paralab, wrote like a, I think it's like a 1300 page commentary on, on this piyut, referring to it as Sadia's Sefer Mitzvot. And it's a extremely learned kind of commentary on on, on the piyutz and on mitzvahs in general, which has kind of, kind of become kind of a staple uh, in the Beit Medrash nowadays. Um, so Sadia wrote this, although I should say also that he also has another composition for Shavuot, which is a Shivata. So if you recall, the Azorot appear in the context of liturgy, but not surrounded by piyutim. Um, it's kind of the standard prayers as we saw. Whereas on top of that, there also were piyutim that were written for the Musaf and Shavuot, called Shivatot, right, which just kind of replace the standard liturgy with piyut, with kind of poetry. And he also has one that he wrote for the holiday, Sadia, which he seems to actually have written at an earlier stage. And there too, there is a list of the 613 commandments, but it's organized differently. Instead of organizing it um, in the way that Halachog Dalot organized the commandments, he organized it actually according to the Ten Commandments, which is a fascinating idea. Um, the last person to have done that before him was, was Philo, actually, in the first century in Alexandria, and there was not a connection between them, although I think Sadia really would have very much found his work very interesting. But he kind of tries to insert all the various commandments into this rubric of the Ten Commandments. So he has these two PU team, which enumerate the 613 commandments, and then later on, he also wrote a prose composition in Judeo-Arabic, which actually is the Sefer Mitzvot, which enumerates, again, the 613 mitzvot. There are some discrepancies. The, 600, the list of the 613 in these three compositions is not the same. <laughs> this again, which just shows you how hard it is to, to fit all the commandments into the rubric 613. And I should say that that book was recently published like within the last year and a half or so um, by Chaim and Nisim Sabato, um, two rabbis, scholars uh, who live in Israel. Um, but they also very learned commentary comparing the three compositions. So Sadia is important, as I mentioned, because he does all kinds of important, interesting things, right? He writes all these interesting works. And also to a certain extent, he, 
is the standardizer, right? He is something that he is someone who people follow. And we're gonna talk about what happened next. So numerous other other were written after Sadia, but most of them really follow his framework. Um, they were convinced, so to speak, by his framework, and also this is partially due to the success of Al-Hog Dolot, um, that all the Azrot that were written, almost all the Azrot that were written afterwards follow um, that pattern of the four-part kind of division of the 613 commandments against what we saw in the early one of Tain Chalva. Famous one is Salman ibn Virol, which is used in many Sephardi rites, also 11th century, but from elsewhere in Spain. Um, we have Alo Ala Moshe which is used in North African rites. And then moving kind of um, eastwards to Ashkenaz and France, we have Eliyahu ben Menachem Zaken's which is used in the French rite, uh, instead of Itain Chalta, which is used in the Ashkenazi rite. Those are kind of the three major ones. Um, and then we have another figure who I mentioned already, Maimonides. And he's a very against the division and the enumeration of 613. It's part of the reason why he, he says that he wrote his own Sefer Mitzvot. Sorry, I missed the T there. And in the introduction to Sefer Mitzvot, he actually says that he was very, very against um, the Azorot. And he refers to the authors of the Azorot as, as poets, not jurists, um, which is true to a certain extent in the, in the sense that they were writing poetry, they weren't trying to be jurists. But at the same time, Sadia was a jurist. Also, you know, uh, Albert Zanoni was also a jurist. It's not, it's not exactly fair to say that they were just poets. Um, but the point is well taken. They were not trying to actually really make a list, a authoritative list of the commandments. Thus, they were, they were somewhat received uh, or interpreted as having, try, having tried to do that. So he wrote his own um, kind of list, which actually I should just say, Interestingly enough, uh, Yosef Kapach, uh, 20th century Yemeni rabbi, um, ended up writing his own Azara according to Maimonides' list. I don't think anyone <laughs> uses it, but he, he was a very, very important scholar and also a very, very important kind of promulgator of Maimonides' Torah, a very, very extensive commentary on Mishneh Torah and also published other works of, of, uh, of Maimonides. And um, he was such a believer that he even thought that he would try and replace the Azarot that were in use with one that follows Maimonides' uh, system. Um, so I mentioned also earlier that, right, the problem is there's, there's two days of Shavuot, right? So you're not gonna say this whole thing twice. You're not gonna also say one person's extremely long composition one day, another person's extremely long composition the other day. So there's different ways of splitting it up, like having the full 613 or the full 570 on day one, and maybe something kind of short the next day. So, um, Another thing that some people do, uh, like this is actually the case in the Catalan rite and also in other Spanish rites, is to say the positive commandments on the first day and the negative ones on the second day. Um, or like in Italy, for example, they, even to this day, if you look at like the Italian synagogue in Jerusalem and their sitter and their machzor for Shavuot, or if you just go to, if you go there, they only just recite the first few lines. They kind of recite the first few commandments. They're like, okay, you got, you got the idea. <laughs> We're gonna move on to the rest of the stuff. Um, Another thing else that happens is that you end up having this other genre, especially in Spain, of Azarod for other holidays. Um, but this takes on a slightly different meaning. Um, what it is is um, the Shabbat before that holiday in Musaf, they have a special piyut that's called an Azara, which enumerates the, the laws of the of upcoming holiday. Um, I would say the practice is pretty much not at all in existence anymore, but it had a surprising afterlife in the Haggadah. We end the Haggadah with Chasal Sidur Pesach Kehil Chata, 
that actually comes from an Azara that was written for Shabbat HaGadol, for the Shabbat before Pesach, and it's referring to the end of the recitation of all the laws of the upcoming holiday of Pesach, which was going to fall that week. And that happens That happens actually every now and then in Piyut, that we see a Piyut that is no longer recited at its original time, but part of it kind of made its way into the Haggadah or elsewhere in the Siddur, elsewhere in the Mahzor. Um, and the Haggadah itself actually has a few kind of examples of that. Um, so alas, sorry to say, we don't really say Piyut uh, that much anymore during prayers. Um, and that's Again, I mentioned very, very early on this talk that Babylonian rabbis were kind of against reciting piyut because it interrupted um, davening and they found it actually to be halakhically problematic. Um, and that position eventually kind of went out. It took around a millennium or so, <laughs> but that is pretty much kind of the opinion nowadays. And on top of that also, it's just long and I think people kind of want to go home. But those kind of two, two reasons uh, combined to kind of push piyut out of the kind of normal original location uh, in prayer. And instead, there's some other options. There's the pre-mincha option. Uh, it's a practice in some communities to recite uh, part of the Azharot at that time, either right after Musaf or kind of later in the day after mincha, maybe after mincha, before or after mincha. And there's another option, which is that in the Tikkun Shavuot, uh, which again is kind of like a more modern practice, um, to recite the Azharot then. And this is somewhat famous because Agnon has this, uh, Shai Agnon has this uh, rather famous kind of uh, memoristic story, Hasiman, which he talks about, he's not sure when, but at some point he started the practice of, of reading Ibn Zorol's uh, Azarot during the Tikkun El Shavuot. And later on in the story, he actually kind of has a vision in which he, he meets Ibn, Ibn Zorol. Um, so for another time, but it's trying to show also like how common that practice would be. And again, this is something which it's interesting to think how Agnon would have even encountered it, given that it wasn't exactly the practice to do that in his community, but for another time. <laughs> um, so that's what happened to the Azharot. And in the re remaining 10 minutes or so, I want to ask one question. Um, and we'll, and, as, and asking the question, we'll also go back to some of the, the texts that we looked at earlier. So how is this prayer, right? How this looks like extremely detailed kind of enumerations of commandments. We see that some rabbis in the 20th century wrote extremely learned commentaries on this, really kind of taking it out of the sitter and using it as a halachic guide, like how, how does this actually function as prayer? We see how it could be used for study, but prayer is a little bit less obvious. Um, so there's one text that Jonah Frankel has brought into this kind of discussion, um, which partially kind of answers this. Um, it's a midrash from Shir Shirim Rabbah. So Shir Shirim, as, as we know, is oftentimes kind of read as a metaphor for God's relationship with the people of Israel. And a lot of it has to do, of course, with, with Torah and how that kind of symbolizes a relationship or is an important part of relationship. Rabbi Yochanan said, an angel would emit a dibur from before the Holy One. This is talking about the moment of revelation on Har Sinai. For each dibur and bring it before every person of Israel, which is an amazing image to think that, you know, an angel would come to every person in the nation and ask them, do you accept upon yourself this dibur? It has these dinim, these punishments, these gzerot, these mitzvot, these kalim and chamurim, these rewards. And Israel would say, yes, or Israel or an Israelite, sorry. It should not, probably there should be an either. Um, so we see this idea that on at Mamad Sinai, every single person received kind of this direct summary or independent individual summary of all the commandments in the Torah. And then at which point they would say, yes, I, they all said, yes, I accept that. And so perhaps the the Azhara itself is kind of this re-experience of Mamad Hor Sinai. This is something which we see 
actually in various points in Jewish liturgy, I should say that Leah's mother has a very fantastic article about this uh, and how we see this also in just kind of uh, the Torah reading ritual itself also to a certain extent is modeled after the receiving of the Torah. And Shavuot becomes kind of this event, especially because of the recitation of the commandments of the Jewish people saying, yes, I'm going to do that. Like we are accepting upon ourselves the Torah again now um, on this Shavuot in this year. So that's perhaps one way in which it is prayer. That might not be exactly how we think of prayer in general, but we could see how this has something to do with ritual, like a ritualized re-experiencing of Mamal Har Sinai by going through everything that was given, all the commandments that were given to the people of Israel at that time. That's one way. Now we'll look at one last way, um, which appears at the end of Sadia's Azhara. So oftentimes, uh, if you want to understand what the Paitan thought of the composition, you have to look at the beginning and the end. That's kind of the bookends is where the framing takes place. So his Hebrew is actually quite difficult. He thought a lot about how to make his Hebrew difficult. Um, and so my, my translation here is somewhat tentative. And he ends, I share my word with Jacob, making him the happiest amongst the nations. The corners of the heavens and earth cannot contain it, the Torah that is. So do not violate it in anger. This is God telling the people of Israel. One nation, I planted you in the land. I crowned you beautiful in my splendor. I shall be magnificent through you as I am through my servant, Jacob and Israel, my chosen. So it's talking, it's talking both to the Torah and to the people of Israel. My chosen, here are my commandments. 613 is their number. Be strong and be brave and perform them for with your help, God is great. Please Lord, now this is changing, you know, the directionality of the speech to the prayer is speaking now in his own words, not kind of the words of God. Please Lord, remember those who accept them. And if their generation is poor of deed, then just as we merited to mention them, so should we merit to perform them and keep them. So we see two things here. We see, first of all, again, there is this reflection on kind of this pedagogical moment, right? Um, the piyut serves to remind people what the commandments are um, and to remind them also of what an amazing thing it is to have the Torah, right? This sounds like a lot. Paitan Sadi acknowledges that this is a lot, but it says also that this is something which is extremely important, that through it, you will be prosperous, through it, you will be glory, glorified, and through it, also God will be glorified. And on top of that, it also, there's a certain prayer at the end that says, God, let us fulfill the commandments. It's actually very powerful. And I think, again, this kind of counterintuitive kind of logic was saying like, it's asking God to, to allow us to fulfill the commandments. That is the prayer. These are all the commandments that we have. We acknowledge this is very, very hard. We want to do it, but we need your help as well. I think that's also one very interesting mechanism which appears in the Azarot, which is this attempt to kind of, or this, this, this request that God let the people of Israel keep the commandments, even though it is so challenging. Um, so yeah, that's also, I think, a very important mechanism and it, it ties in again to this earlier one of this Shavuot, um, the holiday of Shavuot via its prayers as being an event in which the people of Israel accept the Torah yet again. Cool, we have a few minutes left now. I'll be happy to take any questions people have. Feel free to unmute yourself or to drop in the chat. I could also stop sharing. <laughs> I know that was a lot also. I'll be happy to make this. I guess it'll be available on Facebook or whatever to watch it again. It will also be available on the uh, Drisha Live uh, website uh, for anyone who would like to uh, watch it again or yeah. mm -hmm. send to friends. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Um, I don't know if I see there's some questions on the Anglon story. I, I don't feel like I'm such an expert on that right now. Like I read it a long time ago. Um, but in general, I get to say that Agnon has a very, there's a question here about more background about the Agnon story. Um, in general, Agnon like has this very interesting relationship with, with Pew and also with Paitanim. He also has these kind of like imagined encounters with Elizabeth Robbie and Kalir. Um, so I could send references on that if someone wants. Leah, I think you had a question. I do. Hi, thank you. This was so interesting and I'm so glad to have you with me. Um, so the Gemara doesn't know what day Matan Torah happened on and also doesn't know what they, what calendrical date Shavuos is supposed to be. Mm. So, and then, and then like the Rivash, I think writes about like, oh, like Shavuos couldn't have been Matan Torah Tenu until the calendar was set. Mm. Um, Cause like, even once we like have a decision about what day, what like calendrical date of Sivan Matan Torah happened on, until the calendar is set, Shavuos doesn't necessarily fall on that day. So how does that history of the Azharu kind of line up with Shavuos becoming Yeah, I haven't seen it in the Azharu per se. I mean, by the time you get to the Azharu, like the liturgy is so developed. Like I think, you know, these the Paitanim who are, who are authoring it were familiar with like what was going on already in the land of Israel where like, I mean, I guess the examples that Professor Lieber and Novik brought were like, even later compositions, but I, I have to emphasize that there really were like already in the fifth, sixth, seventh century, a lot, a lot, a lot of liturgical compositions around this theme. So it is this extremely, extremely detailed. Uh, I haven't seen anything in this wrote reflecting on this. Some of the stuff from the land of Israel from earlier on, which is less focused, it's less focused on trying to get through all the commandments. So it has a little more kind of space to just kind of ruminate on the Torah and the giving of the Torah. And I do think it might come up a little bit there. Um, but there's no question, there's no, like, they are certain they're celebrating the Torah. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not something which they're, like, nervous about or anxious about. Like, they're, it's, it's also, though, I think I should say, like, an issue of the genre. Like, I mean, it's celebratory. It's not, it's not trying to get into these, like, difficult discussions of calendrical issues. I mean, at times there are calendrical issues that come up in Piyut, but they're not worried about halakhic issues. They're more just kind of celebrating the giving of the Torah. <laughs> yeah. I should also acknowledge that I haven't read I haven't read all the Pew Team and Shavuot. It's just quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, let me see if we have any questions on Facebook. And otherwise I think we are good. Uh if anyone has any questions, now uh now it's your chance. Okay, so Thank you uh, so much Eats, for this uh, interesting class. And uh, thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live and on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I invite everyone to view uh, any past classes and um, stay tuned about future classes on our website, www.drisha.org slash classes. And we really hope to see you again at one of our future classes uh, here at Drisha. Have a good night, everyone.